0: You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse.
1: Hi everyone, it's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse Podcast. I'm just popping in your ears briefly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all over the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend that tends to focus on Indigenous texts, and Subversive Seminary during the week, which focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group who are currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the Vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We record these episodes in community, and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate by being part of our Patreon community. If you're one of our patrons, you can listen to extended conversations with extra questions included such as this.
2: Hell, the word itself is never in scripture. It's Gehenna for the most part. Most uses of either Gehenna or Hades. There's no concept of hell in the Old Testament at all in the Hebrew scriptures. There's no concept of hell in Paul at all. And I don't really think there's a concept of eternal conscious torment with Jesus either. Because when you're talking Gehenna, you're talking about where all the bodies were were burnt up. First of all, it was where people sacrificed their children in the fire to Molech in that valley. It's Gehenna is a valley outside the city of Jerusalem. Um, And Later on, it was where they dumped all the bodies that were burnt up after certain wars. And then later on, and this is contested by some, but later on then, in the time of Jesus, it was a garbage heap, a garbage dump, where people would go dump all their garbage and it would burn continually. There were maggots all over. It was outside the walls, which is another place you used to not ever wanna go. And so you'd go outside the walls to dump your garbage and it would be a horrible, ooh, you know, dumping your garbage out there. And so Jesus is using these, it was like the outer darkness right outside the walls. And so Jesus is using these um, sayings hyperbolically in order to shock the people into listening to what he's saying. And they knew he was talking about the garbage heap outside in the Valley of Gehenna. They knew the history of that valley. And from my perspective, at
1: least, they never would have thought he was talking about some sort of eternal conscious torment. So that's just a little example of what you'll get if you're part of our Patreon community. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you follow, rate, and review this episode in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode.
3: Well, I am excited to introduce our guests for today. We've got a special guest. It is Sharon Baker-Putt. She is professor of theology and religion and the author of multiple really fascinating books, Uh, One is Raising Hell, Rethinking Everything You've Been Taught About God's Wrath and Judgment, Mm -hmm. Executing God, Rethinking Everything You've Been Taught About Salvation and the Cross. Mm -hmm. And then we've got her most recent book, which is A Nonviolent Theology of Love, Peacefully Confessing the Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. Um, And Sharon, when she's not teaching, she's researching and writing in areas around nonviolent atonement theory, justice, reconciliation, forgiveness, and peace. But I think one of the more interesting facts is that she is my colleague. And so I'm really grateful to be in conversation with her and to have her on Inverse podcast. Um, And I know that um, oftentimes, I mean, we've had some conversations around nonviolent atonement together. and connections to J. Denny Weaver and things like that, but I feel like in the hallway we tend to be talking more about race and James Cone and things like that when we run into each other, but I know that you have so much expertise on this, so we're really grateful to have you um, as a part of our series. Welcome,
0: Sharon.
2: Thank you. Um, I'm glad to be here and to see everybody.
0: Yeah, this is going to be fun. Um, Sharon, in this series we've been asking um, the biographical question of uh, when do people first remember hearing the gospel articulated and atonement um, as part of that? Do you have distinct memories of, uh, are there certain moments that come to mind for you?
2: I do. um, A couple of them. Uh, My mother, of course, I was always in church from the time I was young up until fourth grade, and then we moved and stopped going to church, but my mother was always a Christian and would tell me about Jesus. I didn't really understand it. Nobody told me anything about why a man that died 2000 years ago would affect my life today but there was a point in time all I knew was my mother said you have to pray and receive him as your savior and I thought okay you know whatever I think if I become a Christian I get to stop having fun and that's not anything I want to do right away but when I was 19 years old I was sitting in a stoplight and had just had enough of having fun um, for a while and prayed to receive Jesus as my savior, but nothing happened. I expected something to happen, at least a bright light or, you know, oh, angels from heaven or something, at least in my mind, and nothing happened. So I thought that God told me, nope, sorry, you know, you're too bad. You're not good enough. I don't want you. So I went on like that until I was 26 years old. And then somebody finally, I was having great major fears and stuff. I had had my first son. By then I have four sons. And um, a friend of my mother's over the phone told me the whole story of redemption from the beginning of, you know, she told me about Lucifer falling and becoming the devil and sin coming into the world. But then she told me the story of penal substitution. And that made all the sense in the world to me, ironically. And so at that point in time, I did pray to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior's. She was a, she was a Baptist costal. And um, so it was always, you have to, you know, outwardly pray and then you have to go to church and walk the aisle. And so I did all of that and um, went through baptism. And ever since that point, um, through raising kids and going through school, it's, I had this thirst for scripture um, that, you know, I just kept trying to satisfy and I'm still trying to satisfy Um, even today. So it hasn't gone away yet. But my first introduction to atonement was penal substitution. Yeah.
3: Wow. That that seems to be everyone's story almost, right? There's very few people who, uh, that's not their story. So um, that's certainly my story as well. Yeah. Um, So I'm really fascinated with this, um, with you kind of recounting that, because I'm curious about um, how you would say, like, the, that depiction of God that you were introduced to, right? Um, would you describe that articulation of God and that picture of God as violently retributive? Would you have described that vision and that understanding of God as you were presented early on? as uh nonviolent and transformative? Like how would you, and, and even both God as well as its implications for discipleship. I'm curious, yeah. um, as you look back and think back about like wh- what was it that you were being introduced to?
2: Yeah, I was introduced as um, to God as both a violent God, but a God that transforms. So a God of great wrath, yet a God of great love. And it never, It always seemed a little bit hinky to me. Um, (laughs) That that, Wait a minute. If God is wrath and then you read it in the old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, how he wipes out men, women, children, and animals. um, But then there's Jesus who's totally into the transformation and the reconciliation. It just did not compute. And I think it was when I was in my first seminary degree. Um, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I was in a class on Jeremiah and the professor was just driving home with this anger in his face about how God will get you and God's wrath is out for those who are disobedient. The whole class was like that. And I I raised my hand and and said, but what about God's love? You also see in Jeremiah pictures of God's love, images of a redeeming God. And he yelled at me, with the same anger as he was describing the wrath of God, right? I had the wrath of the professor down upon me. Um, And that's when I really started to think there's something wrong with this picture because he could justify his wrath at me in front of a whole class because of God's wrath and my very inappropriate question to him. And it started the whole ball rolling for me that this is not who God is. It cannot be who God is. And Hmm. um, there I went from there.
3: And it's interesting, I mean, that, I mean, the idea that this professor is expressing this wrath that in some ways is an imitation of his understanding of God. Exactly. That's right. Right? Like, I mean, it's a faithful representation and imitation and leaning into and participating in the character of God as he understands it. I know. And I think
2: if we could just grasp onto the opposite of that, (laughs) lean into that, every Christian, what would the world be like?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And... To, to say it again, imitatio dei is a, a dangerous doctrine when your God doesn't look like Jesus. Like it, it yes, just,
3: right.
0: it becomes something that's that can yeah. be quite terrifying. Uh, I'm very aware, um, uh, Dr. Sharon, that you have several texts now, um, almost articulating different aspects of this journey that you've been on, um, uh, seeking uh, a, an articulation uh, of the gospel that does look like Jesus. Um, Uh, your text on hell and the implications for what that means in terms of the the character of God, Um, your book explicitly um, on uh, the cross and how that um, features in uh, uh, people's uh, atonement uh, theologies and your text on the creed. um, And uh, it is a framework for uh, articulating Christianity as uh, a, a, a nonviolent spirituality. How would you now articulate how Jesus saves.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of answers to that for me, and I guess <laughs> they all go together in a complete whole. And even then, I don't know all of it. So I would say, and, and I'll I'll kind of list them all, and we can talk about it after if you want to. But I think that first of all, um, out of love and compassion for creation all creation but I'll talk about it just in terms of humanity Jesus emptied himself he gave up the right to live um, as God in order to live selflessly in solidarity with all of us in our suffering and so that for me would be one of the first steps I know there's some prior to that but And then he taught us how to live selflessly. He taught us how to empty ourselves and in so doing transform ourselves and the world around us when we live the way he's taught us to. He came and he upset the status quo and um, he stuck up for the marginalized. He was suffering in solidarity with the oppressed and those who are suffering as well and teaching us to do the same thing. Then he died at the hands of sinful people. So his mission I think was to come and live that human life emptied out selflessly teaching us how to live in solidarity with those who are suffering and oppressed um, captive to whatever ideology or oppressive government um, taught us how to do that. But he took, he allowed us to nail him to the cross, he took on our iniquities in that way. He died on account of our sin, um, because of our sin, and suffered the consequences of our human sin, because our human sin, put him on the cross and murdered him, basically executed him. And when he was hanging on the cross, he didn't call down legions of angels, like the scriptures told us he could. Instead, He hung there in dire pain, suffering in solidarity with all of those who suffered. There were thousands upon thousands of people crucified in those days um, because of their zeal for liberation or whatever and disturbing the Pax Romana. But he hung there on the cross and he revealed to us the greatest love, the greatest selflessness of all. And I think the crux of our redemption by praying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And when I think about that, and I think about um, in um, James, it tells us that God hears the prayers of a righteous person. And I, I think that as a representative of all humanity hanging on the cross, Jesus prayed for all of humanity, Father, forgive them. And I think the the father did. I think God forgave all of humanity. And what's interesting to me is the reason to forgive us is they don't know what they're doing. And it's an, a, a, a statement of our finitude and our vulnerability and mm-hmm. our ignorance. And that's our human condition now. And it's in, because of our human condition, we have this mercy from God that brings us forgiveness and at that point that forgiveness cleanses us from all sin we hear we see in first corinthians five that god was in christ reconciling us to himself the next phrase tells us how by not counting their trespasses or their sins against them that's flat out forgiveness and so our part is to reconcile with god through that um and then jesus this is one of my favorites it comes from Irenaeus jesus undid the damage the first adam did and brings us into life with god and so it's recapitulation um and just as we participated in the sin of adam we now participate in the righteousness of christ jesus christ actually by giving his life gave us his life and his life is eternal right he's god and so he gave us his eternal life. We take on that eternal life as our own. So we die to ourself. We die to our old life. We take on Christ's eternal life and we participate in the eternal life of God in Trinitarian form. And, you know, I love Eastern Orthodoxy. They call it perichoresis mm. with the members of the Trinity dancing together together. Um, and we're invited up into that, we're told in Ephesians, um, I think it's chapter 2, uh, where we are now raised up with Christ, seated at the right hand of God. And so we now have that eternal life of Christ. That's salvific. That's restorative, reconciling. And we are at peace or at one, at one minute, um with God through him giving us the life of Christ so that it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. And that's where our eternal life comes from. Hmm. Um, he also reveals to us the incomprehensible love of god and which is salvific and um, so while the evil of humanity reached its climax in crucifying jesus he reached out and sought the opposite of revenge out of great love and compassion and now gives us in that salvation the salvation isn't for, for eternity, that's a side benefit. I tell my students, salvation is for us now to take on that life of Christ, to be incarnated as Christ on earth. It's an incarnational theology where we now imitate him, seeking the opposite of revenge, the opposite of retribution, and instead seeking restorative justice. So that not only are we one with Christ and walking in his life now, um, we can. We're invited to bring others into that kingdom, so that mm. they can have that same transformation, that same joy. Um, and so, that to me is what salvation is now. Atonement.
3: That's that's some good news there, right? <laughs> that's
2: good news, isn't There's it? That was yeah. such bad news. Why do we preach the bad news and forget about the good news? I, you know.
3: Yeah, and what, Jared, one of the done. things. Oh, oh, sorry, okay. Drew.
0: I was—I um, I, realise you asked that uh, rhetorically, but even with the example of um, that professor that you had who yelled at you, have how would you answer that question psychologically? Why is it? Do you think um, we need to hang hang on to um, these? Uh, what itch does it scratch? Like, what is yeah. the psychological need that's being met? Have you spent much time with that? Um, yeah, because I'd love to hear your reflection on the, that rhetorical question. <laughs>
2: yeah, I, in fact, I just um taught a heaven and hell topics class for uh this semester where we have one class left, and we had this conversation with my students in the last couple of weeks, um, because people somehow need to see someone punished for the things they do. I don't know if it's the human desire for justice and our justice is retributive. Our justice system works that way now. Um, And so we need that vengeance or we need to see somebody punished um, for the things they do wrong. I've never heard anybody though say, oh, I believe in eternal conscious torment and people are gonna suffer forever in hell. But and I'm going there. I've never heard anybody who believes in hell think that they are going to hell. Um, It's always other people who have done these horrible things. And so I'm not a psychologist. I think Heather could probably answer this question better than I could. But um, we just have that need for some reason for retribution. It seems to be uh, part of the fabric of our humanity, our sinful piece of our humanity. And I
3: don't know why. Yeah, no, it's always fascinating to think about like what is it that inside and in to, not to put it out there like I've been there. There was a point in which I understood the faith, my faith in those terms, right? Um, and what was it that drove me to make think that this makes sense, right, in terms of the God that I serve? Um, it's, it's pretty. But the other thing that really strikes me about um, your articulation—I mean, there's many things because it was so multifaceted—but uh, there's no question that um, love and forgiveness play a particular role. It seems in terms of your articulation. You want to say a little bit more about why that's so important mm. for you in terms of talking about nonviolent atonements?
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot. I, first, I have a lot of answers to that question as well. Um, It seems like the traditional theories of atonement, satisfaction and penal substitution theories, especially compromise the true nature of forgiveness, because if God is paid back for sin somehow, then it's not forgiveness. The accounts have been balanced. (laughs) And so there's nothing left to forgive. Jesus paid it all. And so there's nothing left to forgive. And so forgiveness is the true sacrifice. I mean, Jesus sacrificed his equality with God in order to come down and be made in a human form and live in solidarity with those who suffer. But to forgive is a major sacrifice. And God, through Jesus Christ, sacrifices the right for vengeance or punishment. God suffers the loss for forgiving the debt. So we can say God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, like I said before, by not counting their trespasses against us. That's us. So this divine um, forgiveness really gives expression to the anti-violent nature of God, the nonviolent nature of God, who seeks to save those who are trapped in the strictures and structures of injustice. Um, and, and these injustices are often um, justified by our mistaken notions of who God is, and so Jesus made a very costly sacrifice on our behalf by forgiving us for our sins, by giving up, sacrificing the right to exhibit retributive justice, and so forgiveness is important in that way. It's also important because it's the first step in reconciliation. God can forgive us but then in order for reconcilia- reconciliation to take place, we realize that forgiveness and we can come together and be in a, to a reconciled, restored relationship. And so mm. um, you know, without forgiveness, there is no real relationship, I don't think. We have to lay all that out on the table before God. Um, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, So, I mean, you, you are constantly interacting with evangelical students. I'm sure you've, you know, your background, you've come from a whole, so as you think through um, and, and have dialogue with others around nonviolent atonement, I'm curious about like What passages have given you grief or do give you grief or have given folks around you grief, right? Um, When you're articulating a nonviolent atonement.
2: Yeah, there are a few. Um, The verses particularly that speak about uh, propitiation. Students always bring those up. And I tell them that propitiation is really in the Hebrew um, Bible, the mercy seat, right? Mm -hmm. And has nothing at all to do with appeasing God, but it has everything to do with expiation. It's not propitiation, it's expiation. And it has everything to do with not appeasement, but instead purifying and erasing sin. And you see this in the... um, hebrew scriptures in the sacrifices right of the um, hebrew people uh, not to appease god but in order to um expiate to cover not cover but get rid of erase totally get rid of Um, and you know we can get into conversations about blood and all of that but the the verses people give me the most trouble over the verses that have to do with propitiation yeah and shedding his blood, and then what was that for? And I've got answers for the blood shedding as well, so.
0: Sharon, I I think a a lot of people would love to go there if you're willing. Um, Yeah. uh, In terms of how we hear blood versus how a Hebraic um, imagination would understand uh, blood, do you mind inviting us into that a little?
2: Sure, that'd be great. Um, I first started thinking about the blood. I wondered why it was so important. Because it's important in the Old Testament, it's important, of course, for Jesus, you know, you hear about is there's power in the blood,
0: wonder, working power,
2: wonder, working. power. <laughs> right. Actually, there is, but not the way that tradition That's right. my people have, you know, my I say my people that the evangelical tradition has thought of it. But you get to Leviticus 1711. That says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you to on the, alt, to, on the altar to make I'm to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So, blood is connected to life. So, why is the blood so important? Because it's a symbol for life, and so. In the old testament when they were sacrificing animals and sprinkling the blood and interestingly enough that word sprinkle in the hebrew scriptures in the hebrew is a word that's connected to forgiveness i just thought that was cool so when they sprinkle the blood on the altar they are symbolically giving their lives over to the service and devotion to god and so when jesus comes and sheds his blood on the cross he is The blood is the symbol for him giving his life over for us, to us. And then it translates into um, Romans. We see into our own lives where we are to do the same thing, only not we're not supposed to, you know, shed our blood, although some have, many have. But we are to offer our lives as a living sacrifice on the altar of God, which is our spiritual service of worship. And so it's a giving of life. And so whenever I see blood, I see life. Mm. Um, You get into Hebrews where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the giving of life, there is no forgiveness. Because forgiveness Mm. is, in a sense, giving a piece of your life to somebody. Someone who's really harmed you. And I say, I forgive you. I pardon you. I take that away. I wipe it out. You're, that's a piece of your life that you're giving them, and so. And Sharon, I, well,
0: what I find so fascinating about what you did is that you don't even have to put that passage back in its context. You can you can allow <laughs> that reading um, to allow it to still be ripped out of the, the argument of the passage, and it still undermines a, a, a punitive, punishing uh, mm-hmm. r- reading. That that's phenomenal.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's just I had to deal with the blood when I was writing these books because I knew my readers would say, what about the blood? Mm. Um, and I had to have an answer. They may Good not answer. like it. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: one of the reasons we called the series um, nonviolent atonements is uh, that w- we're so aware that throughout church history, um, uh, there have been different articulations and that there's, there's not one answer um uh that our Lord didn't leave us with a, a diagram but a meal <laughs> this is what um, this is what it is which um, uh, re- requires participation and entering in on and um, being submerged in stories and a part of that means a, a diversity of different takes when you think of um a uh, 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 putty and if i can put it uh, like that articulation of nonviolent atonement where would you say you would um, share in common uh, i i've uh, read some of your work and i see hints of Callistos where in in certain parts um, it's obvious that you've been formed um, in traditions that um, scripture is is central and wrestling is um, uh, so important and your work does um, uh, drips um, with the scriptures and (laughs) your footnotes in terms of the details in which um, you're engaging the patristics, um, uh, even in this conversation you've brought to mind um, early church fathers and their understanding. Where would you place um, your own theologies alongside the projects of um, uh, uh, black or womanist or feminist um, or Eastern Orthodox or Anabaptists, I'm aware that um, J. Denny Weaver is a big influence on yourself as um, uh, Drew, uh, Drew's supervisor for his PhD and and myself. Um, Where would you see your projects kind of differing from uh, those different conversations and where would you see them sharing?
2: Well, it's basically Eastern Orthodox. in thought my theology is very eastern um, in a lot of ways Mm. but then it's mixed in with the anabaptist peace tradition my theology though coheres very well with i mean it may be expressed differently than some black theologies which might focus more on christus victor or whatever and i i am a christus victor hold to that as well we have victory over death sin you Mm. know eventually hopefully Um, but it finds similarity with black and womanist and um, feminine feminist uh, theologies because i'm all about how then do we live yeah and if we're not living it then we might as well just shove it aside and forget about it because we we need to be standing in solidarity with those who are less fortunate for those, to those who are on the margins um, and and give them a voice. And I'm all about that in the classroom too. I'm really struggling with that. Poor Drew, he's got to, you know, in the hallway, I grab him all the time and say, wait a minute, how can I do this? And so, But I want these, I want to give the margins their voice. I want them to be able to tell their stories. And I want us as Christians, walking in the life of Christ, um, learning and at least coming, becoming aware, and then learning how to live life, walking alongside those who suffer, those who are oppressed. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, you can go out and protest. You can, for me, I f- I feel like it's having conversations with my students um, of color or my female students, um, helping them and even my white evangelical students who are, for the most part, very unaware of the, the ethics behind taking care of people who are less fortunate to them. I mean, I, when I have them read Cross in the lynching tree in my theology classes, uh, some of them say, you know, this doesn't connect to the the African or enslaved people's condition. How in the world can they connect that? And it's just, whoa, um, and so for me to stand in solidarity is to explain that to them, to give them a picture of what that looks like and what that means, and then live it out in life. Um, and I think that's where my theology would connect because it's a liberating theology. It's a restorative theology. Um, one that cares about the lives of the least of these that Jesus cared about as well.
3: Sharon, I'm curious, you know, so I know that you are constantly confronted with theologies that um, accommodate domination and white supremacy and patriarchy and cycles of violence. Where do you start in challenging those kind of theologies that accommodate so much violence and oppression?
2: I start with Jesus um, and the teachings of Jesus. You can't get away from it. <laughs> and, you know, Jesus came to reveal God. And so if I can start with Jesus and get across to them that Jesus reveals the Father to us, and then they're maybe willing to see a different picture of God who calls out a different people but then invites everyone else into the mix as well that um and Jesus who is worried about the widows and the orphans uh, the poor people the disenfranchised um, and who teaches peace and love and um, and if I can start there and they can grab a hold of what that may look like and then we talk about other doctrines, if they can apply what Jesus says and what Jesus is to the doctrines we're talking about, some of these doctrines begin not to make sense to them at all, and and they begin questioning them themselves. Um, and so I begin with the life and the teachings of Jesus, which uh, we're called to be a part of.
1: Yeah,
0: Beautiful. Uh, I'm aware as we have the conversation that uh, we've been sent uh, emails or messages uh, on different platforms and people's own questions uh, are coming to the surface as as they're um, genuinely seeking to explore these alternatives um, that they can intuit a life-giving and give permission for uh, not just their own lives to look like jesus but for god to look like jesus yeah. <laughs> and uh, one of the questions that we've had come up um uh a number of times including um just a few hours ago is um i uh, will give the question and then i'll give a, a disclaimer um uh, but w- what about god in the old testament and there's a part of me the disclaimer is um m- my mum's side of the family are russian jews um there almost is a subtle anti-Semitism that I sometimes hear. You ask any rabbi, what is God like? And they're going to give you slow to anger, abounding in love. Um, Much uh, more beautiful God than most Western Christians. (laughs) uh, Somehow Christians, um, uh, something happens in their reading of the New Testament where instead of what we see in Jesus um, uh, uh, now being revealed throughout all of scripture, um, there is a mechanism um, uh, that like, has been able to um, uh, surpass the life of Jesus, which is read back into the rest of scripture. And God looks worse. God is more angry. God is more vengeful. God is... Sharon, how do you start to um, open that up for students without buying into this um, uh, scapegoating um, and misrepresentation of the he- Hebraic scriptures um, that scripture, uh, Christians are often so guilty of.
2: Yeah, I, I look at the context and explain this to students as well, um, in which these um, Hebrew scriptures were written, um, millennia ago and the worldview of the people at the time. And the worldview of the people at the time, when these, during the times that these were being first transmitted orally and then put into writing, was that they saw the world as everything coming from the hand of God. And so if a woman, got pregnant and had a child, it was because God opened the womb. If she couldn't, it was because God closed the womb. If their crops grew, it was because God caused them to grow. If they didn't, God stopped them from growing. If it rained, God caused it to rain. If it were a drought, God withheld the rain for some reason. Going to war, if if they went to war, it was because God told them to. If they didn't, and God won the victory for them, besides. And if they um, didn't go to war, it's because God told them not to, or God was not going to win the victory for them. And so everything in their purview was coming from the hand of God. And they couldn't step out of their context and their culture in order to write the scriptures. I guess it depends on your view of inspiration. But I don't go with the, you know, they went into a trance and wrote without knowing what they were writing, and God dictated word for word. I think that the human element in scripture is what one of the things that makes it so miraculous. Um, and we have a living word who is human and divine. We have a written word, which is human and divine. And so the human element gets written into the text as well. How could it not? And the people really thought God was telling them to wipe out all of these nations. They really thought that God was responsible for calamities and violence, um, when in reality, God was not. Now, I still hold to a very high view of scripture and I have no problem saying that, um, that we have the cultural written in with the divine um, in scripture, and that's not always a satisfying explanation for people, but it is for me.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm even aware, um, and in laying out different uh, nonviolent terms that uh, I didn't mention um, uh, Gerardian reading and how that's impacted yes. right across the, the um uh different streams uh, i mentioned um, at rereadings but uh someone like michael harden who mm-hmm. has pushed so much in uh this direction that he now sees um uh it, anything in matthew's gospel um Uh, like Matthew 25 Um, for those of us who are formed by the Catholic worker movement that this is our if your theology starts with father forgive them they don't know what they're doing Um, the Catholic worker uh, expression of discipleship might start with Um, whatever you did for the least of these um, that was me you did it to me Um, and he would see that as completely punitive as a um, trying to hold law and grace at the same time that this is a regression for christianity um and my uh my nervousness with that is that our our theories start to um uh, take precedence over the struggle with scripture itself um that you get to go no no i have a particular reading of john's gospel so i get to uh, cancel out uh matthews and um, maybe he's just being more honest with what so many people do <laughs> all the time with their reading of, of, of scripture um but even with like gerardian understandings that uh sometimes um it could be seen that salvation it, it just becomes a now I understand certain social dynamics instead of something that actually is transformative, um, that does change lives other than realising realizing that this is how uh, societies um, work. Would you talk to us a little about um, how you think this project for a um, a Christian faith that bears the beauty worthy of what we see um, in the life of the nazarene um how does that change our reading of scripture how how does that change how we approach the text for you um what does that look like to um um, prize the scriptures um and read them in ways that lead to lives that look like jesus
2: yeah i call it my jesus lens i i um Mm.
0: yeah that's beautiful
2: read scripture through the lens of who jesus is, and taught um, the things that he did. Um, I, and the Southern Baptists, uh, Baptist Faith and Message, the earlier one from the 50s, said that Jesus is the criterion through whom we interpret scripture. Well, in 2000, they took that out, which is what made me no longer a Southern Baptist. But, right. Uh, um,
0: just in time for the war in Iraq.
2: I know, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I use the Jesus lens um, and, and look at, even though they're the Hebrew scriptures, I'll look at them through the lens of what Jesus said, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught. And when you, when you look at these violent scriptures, you've got to have another explanation because that's not how Jesus would behave. So, you know, we all have a canon within a canon. And I think that the violent scriptures are useful for teaching and reproof and correction, um, like we're told in Second Timothy. But I look at um, Isaiah saying, God waits on high, longing to be gracious to you. Mm -hmm. Um, I see the Psalmist saying, God has removed your sin as far as the East is from the West. Um, You see God choosing out a people for his own possession, a, a special treasure. And that's what those words in the Hebrew give you this picture of God just absolutely loves and has compassion on these people. You read in Lamentations, how God's mercies are new every morning, uh, they, they never end. And the, the prophets talking about come back to God who loves you um, like you know a mother eagle loves her chicks. He's the God who bore you, who gave birth to you, who nurses you, who sustains you. And those are the passages that reflect what Jesus is and taught and did. And so, yes, I admit to a canon within a canon, but my canon begins with Jesus Christ. And I don't think you can really go wrong there, maybe. <laughs> I just don't think you can. I mean, we're Christians, Christians, uh, people who follow Christ. And so, of course, he needs to be um, our, our lens, you know, the glasses we put on before we go to the Old Testament. Mm.
3: Sharon, I'd love to hear, I know you have this new book out, A Nonviolent Theology of Love, and I really would love to hear, like, can you just give us like a snapshot of what you're doing in that book, and how in the world the Apostles' Creed has anything to do with a nonviolent theology (laughs) of love?
2: Yeah, and here it is, by the way, my uh, my background is stopping me from showing it, sorry. Um,
0: (laughs) You've been censored already
2: i know right? <laughs> i'm used to that anyway um yeah the book i you know i started out with raising hell which deals with the doctrine of hell and the the object with that of doing that was to get to um, the image of god and how people so often especially in my tradition view god as this violent tyrant who really, you know, is waiting to put the thumb screws on you rather than waiting on high longing to be gracious to you. And so I wanted people's image of God to be more like the image of Jesus so that maybe our behavior would change because I'm concerned about Christian violence, religious violence in general, but Christian violence is specifically. And so how do I get at that? Well, I can start by getting at these violent doctrines like hell, which is a terribly horrible doctrine. And then the next one was atonement. How do I change the image of God through doctrine? And well, the atonement is an extremely horrible, violent event, but in that violence, God is anti-violent, against violence. So I don't talk about non-violent atonement. I'd rather talk about anti-violent atonement because God is anti-violent through the life of Jesus. And so then I thought, well, why stop at atonement I'll just go all the way through the different topics in religion, what people sometimes call systematic theology, um, and use the Apostles' Creed as my guide. And I like the Apostles' Creed.
0: Me too. Um, I'm I'm just going to put it out there that I, um, I, I saw Drew's kind of Anabaptist. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of, the creeds yeah. aren't that popular, but uh, I think um, uh, there are ways to, and Drew would share this as well. I'm just teasing.
3: <laughs> it was Josh interpreting my
2: question. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, the, the Apostles' Creed is, um, it leaves you lots of wiggle room to construct theology in ways that. Um, I think are more palatable to people who have problems um, with these violent theologies that we've held to for so long. And, you know, it it helps us focus on what's of first importance, um, which Paul says is Christ crucified. You know, Christ who lived, died, was buried, and rose again. Um, And I can easily confess the Apostles' Creed And fit in my atonement theology my views of hell um, my views of creation and humanity and the church and our place in that in the world um, because it's so broad. um, That I I like I also like that it doesn't have a specific history that you can pinpoint it's sort of out there and nobody quite knows exactly where it came from there's arguments about you know it shows up in a letter in the fourth century um but then you know it's it it isn't official for you know a couple centuries later and so i i like the ambiguity of of how it came about rather than a bunch of men got together and decided what a creed was going to be made up of
0: Hmm. yeah i um i pulled up we were talking earlier my my dear friend um ben myers an australian scholar um and if you don't mind um can i read uh, just a, a few paragraphs from how he starts his book on the creed yes. um, uh, so he, he takes a quote from Hippoclitus uh, um, which I think is from the third century um, where he's talking about he, he retells uh, the experience um, of the creed uh, and that it was actually used at, in baptism um, rather than from um Uh, you know some church council um, that came up with it later he starts with picture this scene it's the night before Easter Sunday a group of new believers stayed up all night in a vigil of prayer and instruction most important moment of their lives is fast approaching it will be an intense spiritual experience that will mark them forever they have been preparing this for this day for months even years When the rooster crows at dawn, they are led into a pool of flowing water. They take off their clothes and anointed from head to toe with oil. They are led naked into the water and they are asked a question. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? When they reply, I believe, they are plunged down into the water and raised up again yeah um those paying attention um and and know um uh church of the brethren and other expressions they'll be really pleased by what's about to happen and the fact that this is um third century they then asked a a second question do you believe in jesus christ the son of god who was born of the holy spirit and the virgin mary who was crucified under pontius pilate and died and rose again on the third um day living from the dead, ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father and will judge living and again. Again, they confess, I believe. And again, they immersed in water. Then the third question, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? A third time they cry, I believe, and the third time they immerse. When they emerge from the pool, they are clothed and blessed and led into the church where they will share for the first time in bread and wine. Finally, they are sent out into the world to do good works. What is now called the Apostles' Creed, um, originally the series of three great baptismal promises, this creed wasn't created by a council or drafted by a committee. It was grassroots confession of faith, an Indigenous expression of the church's response to Christ. I'll stop there, but I, I really love that sense and the mm, um uh, from Hippocrates, um uh what they were sent out to do um was to serve the poor and the suffering yeah. and it, it was um they they left that service to serve the poor and the suffering and that's what their life was to be marked by yeah. sharon uh, i i think the apostles creed is um such rich fertile soil if it can be um redeemed from uh, um stale um reciting in ways that don't send us out to serve um, the poor. How have people received your text? How how has this been responded to?
2: Yeah so far so good. It's new still and so I haven't gotten a lot of response but the responses that I've gotten have been very good. I know I'm going to get you know the nasty letters and you know whatever but um so far, so good. The
0: blessings of being persecuted, I think our Lord calls it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, you know, those never it never bothers me when that happens um, at all. Except for the one man when I wrote Raising Hell who sent me these horrible things to my office mail. And I looked him up on Wikipedia. Actually, he was in Wikipedia, and he had been arrested for trying to kill his wife with a hatchet. And I thought, I think I'm glad he doesn't know my home address. But goodness, yeah. But no pushback too bad so far but it, you know a lot of people haven't read it yet because it's so new but, hmm. yeah well we'll see the other one's got some pushback i,
0: I noticed you shared that um y- you didn't touch um the virgin birth um and nor did you uh go in terms of the Herring of hell and um uh he descended into hell um Would you let us in a little bit if, can we ask for a director's cut as to why?
2: Sure. The Virgin Birth, mostly I haven't gone into it because I haven't made up my mind yet Hmm. about the Virgin Birth. And I didn't, I could have written about the the history of it. Um, And there's a lot I could have written about it because I've studied so much about it, but I really, you know, you never arrive theologically and there's there's a couple things that the jury is still out for me and that's one of them um and so i left it out mostly because it was already like a hundred thousand words over the limit that the publisher wanted <laughs> there were some sure. things i had to cut out the harrowing of hell to me is so profoundly um significant that i just didn't have space to do it and um And its significance for me, I think, is because of the Greek, the Eastern Orthodox iconography that surrounds the harrowing of hell, that for atonement theory and for our own resurrection is just, um, I mean, there's no words at at how significant that is and how profound it is for us. And, um, you know, that's, I take students, my husband I have taken them twice to Greece now for a course for three weeks, and I always take them to the place where these um, iconographers are one of them's a recent orthodox priest and um those are the icons that really speak to them as well um, yeah the harrowing of hell I don't know if you've ever seen one but um
0: uh, I have several
2: <laughs> do you so do, yeah I do too actually and I'm an iconography I'm an iconographer myself so I really um, really yeah.
0: yeah yeah fantastic
2: I'm not as good at it as some are but you know I make a joyful icon rather than a joyful noise right so right <laughs> yeah but you know the the iconography with jesus you know hades at the bottom of this pit and the, all of the locks are broken in this mm. eastern icon and jesus is standing on a cross-like platform and he's pulling either with one hand pulling them both out or one in each hand pulling Adam and Eve up out of Hades, and it's the resurrected Jesus, because you have the almond shaped um, brilliance yeah. around him, Yeah. And, and Adam and Eve are the representatives of all humanity, and so Jesus is down there preaching to everybody, but it includes everybody that had died before him, but it includes everybody, all humanity, in that salvific embrace, where he's yanking us all up out of our sin, and our suffering, and our um, hellish lives and and bringing us new life and letting us enter into his resurrection it's just a profound symbol for me um, these icons in the west it's weird because you don't get that in the west the icons are either this empty tomb or it's jesus already resurrected and just standing around you know shooting the it's
0: sometimes a, a couple of feet off the ground holding a english yeah. flag which
2: <laughs> yes <laughs> that's it Um, So these are really profound symbols. And I couldn't write that into the... That's another book. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But we look forward to that one as well. Yeah.
2: We'll see. Might take a while. (laughs) And so these these things are so meaningful. Um, I I wish my students could catch a vision of life with Christ and what that means.
0: Um, Sharon, that's so... Beautiful, and I'm I'm very aware that your your work is shot through with that desire. Like even as the books build, um, there is that desire to show the implications of uh, what a nonviolent messiah means for all our theology. Um, do you think Christian universalism is the the natural outworking of Taking a nonviolent messiah seriously?
2: Yes, I do. Um, it took me a while to get to that point, but for the last, um, I don't know, 15, you know, maybe 13 years, I finally have to come out as a Christian universalist. Christian universalist. I mean, people don't know the difference typically between universalism and Christian universalism, I and mean, the universalism, the difference is major. I keep telling <laughs> students Christian universalism um, not heretical at all. It's yep. something that's a beautiful part of the Eastern tradition of the church. That's right. actually, uh, With this purifying process that's, um, you know, in the fire of God. And it's just a, but yeah, I think if you're, if you have this view of Jesus, um, which therefore you have that view of God and God's grace and mercy, that Christian universalism, for me, is the only answer because, first of all, it's very scriptural. Mm. Second of all, um, what what God is more powerful and more loving, and the power of love is the more powerful of any kind of power. The course of power, you know, is, is the power of love is more more powerful. A God who is like an unrequited lover who says, I love you. I want you come to me. I'll give you everything you need. You'll inherit everything I have. But if you don't, you are going to burn in hell. I am going to make sure you're tortured for all eternity. That's a scary God and not an all powerful God who really desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, but can't make that happen. And so you've got, I give students a scoreboard. You've got God on one side who has 333 people and the devil on the other side in hell who has 666 people (laughs) the scoreboard is obviously you know God's the loser and so but is God more powerful if God can out of grace and mercy save every single person who ever lived and the 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 efficacy of the atonement, the work of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, effective enough that it covers and purifies and makes righteous every single person who ever lived so that all are eventually restored to God. That's the more powerful God for me. Mm. So I say Jesus didn't come to pay off God. He came to show off God.
0: Ooh, that'll preach.
2: Yeah, maybe. Well, I'm a woman. I can't preach.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you left those circles quite some time ago.
2: I did, yes.
0: Um, Sharon, this has been wonderful. Drew and I uh, keep emphasizing that um, exploring nonviolent atonements, it, it unearths and sometimes exercises things in us that are incredibly deep. Um, uh, stories that um, we've internalized and, and things that we long to be true and some things that we're terrified might be true Yeah. such as God is love um, we would love it before we go to the Q&A time for um, those who are with us and all joining us listening later on Patreon w- would you pray for those who are listening? Um,
2: yeah
0: We'd really appreciate that, thank I you know.
2: Yeah, let's pray God, you are so gracious, merciful and loving. If only we could get a glimpse of that, even a small glimpse of what that really means. Mm -hmm. And I pray that for everyone who's listening, for all those that come in contact with us and with whom we have these conversations, that you will let the light of your love and your compassion and your salvation shine through everything that we say and do that we may be led by your spirit to be ministers of reconciliation, to be real ambassadors for Jesus Christ, that we may be a sweet aroma of our Lord Jesus every place we go, everything we say and the things we do. May you help us to reach out like Jesus did to the poor, the suffering, the oppressed, the disenfranchised, the ones who are neglected and ignored, whose voices are never heard. May we be those who listen and who help and who heal and who work to reconcile and restore a lost world to you. And it's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Sharon. My pleasure.
0: The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com inverse.